the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Dr. Alex McFarland. More information available on the web at alexmcfarland.com. That's alexmcfarland.com. We've been talking about this issue of moral relativism. 1960s into the 70s, there was a big push towards questioning authority. Now today there seems to be a denial that that authority even exists. And it's interesting, sort of the slippery slope, Dr. McFarland, we go from discounting God to nullifying God to eliminating God. Now all of a sudden, if, if natural law or God-given law is no account, then we kind of just get to do whatever we want. We don't have to give an answer for anything uh, that we do, none of our actions, and society now becomes simply anarchy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I'm finishing up a book that will come out in July on natural law. And in the book, I talk about the fact that, you know, there have always been people in the world that did uh, evil things. There have always been sinners, uh, from, you know, the person who pilfers a candy bar at the store or steals a piece of gum to, you know, murderers. Uh, There have always been sinners. But I think this era is a little bit unique in that really for the first time in history, to my knowledge and uh, to my research, I mean, masses of influential people and movements all over the globe are really trying to deny, suppress, and pretty much eliminate any recognition of, of objective morality. You can call it natural law, moral absolutes, universal truth. And, um, Craig, would, would you agree? I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're heading into uncharted waters where corporately, uh, popularly, and certainly legally, it is becoming unpopular and maybe even illegal to assert that there are some moral boundaries. Well, you know, the scary thing and, about that, and I, and I would agree, Dr. McFarland, because, you know, let's, let's face it, in, in this march towards more and more moral ambiguity, uh, we're, we're essentially saying, well, no, we, we're just wanting to promote freedom, that we have the freedom of action, freedom of choice. Well, the, the problem is that my, my freedoms, uh, you know, cease when they begin to impede upon your freedoms, you know, uh, so all of a sudden, if I want to be free to, you know, flail my arms about, that's okay if I wish to do that, so long as your face is not within hitting distance. And, and and I think the, the sad thing about this is that we're defining freedom as meaning I have any right to do what I want without regard of others. And and this is where this is beginning to, to really cause, I think, uh, eventually, if, if it doesn't get mitigated, it, it's going to cause the collapse of society. It is. It will be the end of our Constitution if we don't somewhere... Uh, maybe by the grace of God, find the courage and the fortitude to say, look, um, you're free to do what you want to do, but it has to be within a moral context. 
Um, let, let me say this, that it is even secularists and atheists have a vested interest, if they would recognize it, but they have a vested interest in allowing there to be a Judeo-Christian moral context, because it's the only solid ground on which our Constitution and really the stability of the whole world can stand. Now, listen to this. I think you'll find this interesting. I spent a lot of time last week finishing up this manuscript, and I was trying to get my hands on all of the most recent philosophers and ethicists, and I was reading about natural law. And Craig, universally, philosophers acknowledge that civilized society has always been built on belief in some moral boundaries. And from the Greeks in the 3rd century B.C., Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, um, part of what they they pointed out was design. And even though in the Greek and Roman societies there were people who practiced unspeakable sexual deviancy, they admitted that was not the norm, that's not the design, that's not what humans are made for. Um, the human body and human intimacy is designed for a man and a woman, and children are born that way. So anyway, you come up through the Church Age, and, and St. Augustine really defined um, pursuing virtue and uh, avoiding, you know, the, the vices. So anyway, I'm reading a lot of these ethicists, and one from Britain, and I'm, I'm not going to give his name because I really don't want to give him any undue PR. 500 pages, he praises natural law, moral boundaries. I thought, well, this is great. You know, this is one of the most recent philosophy books being used the world over, and he's, you know, giving props for natural law. In the last two paragraphs, the final two paragraphs, he, he says, now I realize that this flies in the face of the, the recent mainstreaming of homosexuality, gay marriage, gender fluidity, transgenderism, and all of the 6,000 years of human history we've just documented, and the best governments and the most stable societies, where we are flies against that. So what do we say, this author asks. Well, human relationships are complex, and moving forward, we all have to do what's right for ourselves. Wow. So yeah, com completely I'll... discounts, then, the, the reality of, of, of morality that's in there that allows us to essentially live peacefully amongst each other. The book of Judges said there was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Judges 5.8, speaking of that time, said when Israel chose new gods, there was chaos within the gates. And I, I thought, wow, rather than with conviction saying, you know, our society is a little bit off in the weeds right now, but if we, if we want to have what we've enjoyed, we're going to have to recover moral boundaries. I mean, you know, I, I say this when I debate atheists or uh, secularists of any strata, I'll say, look, if you want a free, safe, prosperous America, we can have that, but you have to tolerate what gave us a free, safe, prosperous America, and that is the Judeo-Christian worldview. Now, if you don't want to be a Christian, you don't have to. Nobody's trying to force anybody to, to any religion. I hope you'll be a Christian, because I know it's Christ that is the doorway to heaven. But I'm talking here on Earth. Um, you, if, you know, if you want to be engaged in any manner of activity, 
consenting adults behind closed doors. You can do that. But what we can't or shouldn't let any special interest group do is dismantle the moral philosophical foundation on which our Constitution rests. And like it or not, uh, John Adams said it, James Madison, Jefferson, Washington certainly said it, the great leaders of our nation's history have known it. But what gave us the Declaration, Constitution, and Bill of Rights is the Judeo-Christian natural law moral code. That's why Pelosi and Feinstein and Hillary and everybody had such a meltdown over Neil Gorsuch and then Brett Kavanaugh, because both of them, having gone to Catholic law schools, are natural law theorists. And of course, if you believe in natural law, as they do, and I, I pray to the good Lord that our president is soon able to nominate and ratify another justice, maybe, and I wish her no ill, but for the good of the republic, I pray for the replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg with somebody who actually has some convictions uh, and is not just a, a political and historical and judicial revisionist, as she is. But um, natural law, it's not religion, it's not breaking the First Amendment. Uh, the man that wrote the First Amendment, Fisher Ames, believed in natural law. We have to restore belief in natural law if we want our nation and, frankly, the world to survive. Dr. Alex McFarland, Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. We appreciate the time. It kind of reminds me of one of the uh, the uh, perhaps penultimate statements made by uh, Swiss theologian Karl Barth. He said, the gospel is not a truth among other truths. Rather, it sets a question mark against all truths. 617, the clock. Let's get an update on traffic for you. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there in the world of traffic? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a bit of graffiti that I saw on a wall one day that made such an interesting statement. You, you've heard this phrase before, God is dead. And Nietzsche, in fact, had made that comment low many years ago. So here is the big piece of graffiti on the wall that says, God is dead, Nietzsche. And somebody had come along and tagged it in different color spray paint and drew a big circle with a line through it. And then down below wrote the following phrase, Nietzsche is dead. God. <laughs> it makes you makes you kind of look at the whole debate over the existence of a higher power, a greater being, uh, God himself, and the sense that struggle in the modern age of, of increased knowledge that people have. While I think there is unprecedented levels of interest and hunger in spiritual matters, um, along with that, though, we see the fastest-growing segment of belief is in fact non-belief or atheism. Well, why is that? And how much of this has to do with understanding of God and the level of the way in which Christians live out their lives, and in some ways, perhaps embarrassingly so, turn people off to the gospel? How can we put forward evidence for God in an age of uncertainty? 
Well, we've invited uh, Dr. Rice Brooks to join us on the program. He is um, pastor of Bethel World Outreach Church. He's the author of a number of best-selling books. His latest, simply entitled, God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. And Pastor Brooks, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Craig. This is, uh, this is an old debate, but it's a debate that seems to be ever-increasing these days, as certainly we see a tremendous interest in the occult, in the supernatural, um, in um, alternative so-called religions like Wicca and paganism and so on and so forth. I don't, don't think there's any argument that mankind still doesn't quest for some kind of a, a satisfaction to a spiritual thirst, but the manner in which we go about doing it, and in particular the direction in which we head in terms of whether or not we ultimately arrive at belief in God or not, that seems to be changing. And as you point out in the book, uh, remarkably and disappointingly so, the fastest segment of those in the arena of belief are those who believe in nothing. Why is that? Craig, uh, that was actually a Newsweek article uh, last Easter that said that they, they noted that, that the fastest growing of, quote, uh, area segment of, quote, belief is, uh, is uh, atheism or skepticism. I think, uh, you know, after, probably after 9-11, there was a rash, uh, shortly after there was a rash of books by men like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and, and the late Christopher Hitchens, and they they took their beef with religion public in a, in a greater way um, to to basically to ridicule faith, to say there's no evidence for God, and so a lot of those books and materials have come out, and there's just this rash of that kind of it's almost like a political campaign, and I think that uh, the arguments that they put forth are flawed, and if but if there's no response to those arguments, uh, then then those arguments, though deeply flawed, will prevail. So I think that what happens, and that's the reason I wrote the book, God's Not Dead, one of the reasons is because I think there are clear, uh, clear, straightforward arguments or evidences for God, but you have to know what they are. And, of course, you have to live it out. I wonder, just based on what we see as modern-day Christianity in a world of, uh, you know, mega churches and, and the approach towards, uh, uh, you know, new ageism, so on and so forth, creeping into what had been um, normative evangelical Christianity, that there are a growing number of believers out there who can't defend their faith because the faith they have is indefensible, meaning that it is weak, it is listless, it's ineffective. Craig, you're right. And I mean, I mean, really, the I mean, Jesus himself came along, and the greatest, seems like some of the greatest criticisms was against religion itself, or the practice that uh, thereof, and the, and the mis- misunderstanding that lives of people gave in terms of what how they represented God. But, you know, again, I have five children. If my children do bad things, that doesn't mean I don't exist. And so I think it's really beside the point, the question of, does God exist? Is there evidence for him? Uh, I believe there's clear clear-cut evidence, not only scientifically, philosophically, and then ultimately, historically, in the resurrection of Christ. And though lives of certain people are, who profess to be believers uh, maybe discredits that or points away from that, I think that we have to say those are, philosophically, those are called ad hominem arguments, meaning it's argument against the man. But um, really, when you, when you start looking at that and when you start putting forth the evidence for God, uh, in fact, the Newsboys, a Christian group uh, that many of them have been a part of our church out here, they have a song uh, that they uh, put forth called "God's Not Dead." And in the last 18 months, it was a, you know, a very fast number one hit, and 
and, and there was it's a it's almost like an anthem for faith as opposed to maybe John Lennon's Imagine There's No Heaven, which if there's an anthem for unbelief, that might be the the, the song. But um, then the newsboys, many of them came and said, you know, would you write this book to, to give the evidence? Because really, uh, three out of four young people will leave their church youth groups, and when they get to college, three out of four will will pretty much leave their faith behind. It, is so part of the challenge here, even as we try to go about giving evidence for God, that the the protagonist ends up having to deal with maybe an even bigger question that's being presented, and not just that God exists or doesn't exist, but that why his existence even matters? That's an excellent question. I was actually at a—I work a lot, Craig, on the university campuses, our our ministry. We're on maybe 700 campuses around the world, and I was out on a a campus, a University of Buenos Aires, and I I had a translator with me, and I, I had four atheists there. And they basically posed that to me. They said, well, why does this even matter? Why does the existence of God even matter? Why do we even need to discuss it? And one of them had a guitar. And so through the translator, I I said, do you write music? And he thought I was changing the subject and said, you know, like, okay, let's quit talking about God. Let's talk about me. And he said, yes, I I write music. And I I said, let me ask you, I I said, have you ever written a song? He said, yes, I've written a song. And I said, why did you write it? And he said, I wanted to bless, I wanted to, he didn't say bless, he said, I wanted to help people, I wanted to express my feelings. And I said, well, what if you wrote a song and somebody either denied you wrote it or took credit for what you wrote, would that bother you? And he just instantly said, absolutely, you know, in his own, however he said that. And I said, well, what if you created a planet? <laughs> in other words, God is the creator we're so uh, we're so in tune to our intellectual property rights and to that, but here God is the creator of everything. He has the patent on air. He has the patent on DNA. Because he is the creator, then all of life points to his ownership. And that's what in the, in the Scripture talks about when we stop honoring him as God or giving thanks and our hearts become darkened. So because God is real, he is the ultimate basis of reality. And so to deny that or to ignore that, it's much like a fish that just says, I just don't want to acknowledge water. I don't want to acknowledge what surrounds me. Uh, and, it's, and it says, in him we live and move and have our being. So everything, it's everything to do with a healthy life, with a normal life, to understand the, the very ground of our being, which is God himself. And the existence of your doubt does not pretend to the notion that, therefore, what you doubt exists certainly does not. We're going to go a little bit deeper on this uh, Equation. We're visiting today with uh, Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. We'll take a brief time out. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Rice Brooks with us today. A look at God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. And certainly there's plenty of that these days with the the knowledge on the increase, as Scripture tells us it would happen. More and more people want evidence. When it comes down to that evidence, let's talk about that. There's often that sense out there, uh, Dr. Brooks, that this is all about blind faith and that somehow we need to check our brains at the door, that there is a disconnect between science and belief. Talk to us a bit about this notion that somehow uh, belief in God necessitates that we completely disconnect our intellect. 
Uh, Craig, excellent point. In fact, last year I went to the Global Atheist Convention uh, down in Australia to listen firsthand to men like Richard Dawkins and the rest of these uh, folks that are putting this forth. And um, that was really their central contention. Ironically, Craig, uh, on the opening night of the convention, there were four professional comedians. You'd think you'd go all the way to Melbourne to hear, you know, something very scientific and profound or, you know, deeply philosophical to substantiate their lack of faith, and, and it was just insult and mockery. And ironically, there was very little reason present at the global celebration of reason, as they called it. On the other hand, real faith isn't blind, meaning that we have faith based on, number one, that we know God is real from what he's created. I think science is pointing to that. In fact, um, I was in the home of a man named Francis Collins, who uh, headed up the Human Genome Project. And, and really, Craig, imagine this. Imagine imagine somebody listening got a text on their phone, and, and usually what we call it is a pocket text. And, and you had a few disjointed letters or disconnected letters. You'd know it was somebody sat on their phone. If somebody gave you a complete sentence, like if a student, you know, don't tell anybody I cheated on the test, they would know that sentence was not randomly produced. Well, what about a sentence 3.1 billion letters long? That's the ordered information in the human genome. And that's what caused men like Anthony Flew, who used to be the world's most famous atheist, to basically, before he died, to say, I now believe in God because of the information in DNA. And so if you go to the very beginning of the universe, uh, scientists talk about it being fine-tuned, meaning that from the very beginning, if you just take what physicists tell us about the Big Bang, uh, basically, there was such an order, and it's almost like you had little knobs, like if you had a universe starter kit, and gravity and other, other of these constants and quantities were so finely tuned that the only response that atheists have is, is that, well, there must be an infinite number of universes. See, if you have an infinite number of chances, then you get a universe like ours, which has all of these fantastically uh, calibrated, uh, uh, for, you know, you know, equations and equations, but that's when you take laws and put them into mathematical statements. They are, they are, it displays and, and shows the in, incredible order in the universe. Stephen Hawking, probably the most celebrated physicist of our time, uh, had a show on the Discovery Channel, and he said the universe could pop into existence on its own, out of nothing. And it's basically this you know, kind of the implication of quantum mechanics, which says that in the subatomic world, these particles kind of appear and disappear. But there's this kind of underlying thing that they say the laws of physics would predict this. So what you have, Craig, is you either have an eternal set of laws that have just been there or an eternal lawgiver, which is the better explanation. So, right, what, what about the argument you made mention earlier, you brought up Richard Dawkins' name, uh, and you're, you're kind of heading down the road toward uh, the notion of intelligent design. Now, Richard Dawkins would suggest that, well, wait a minute now, to, to suggest there's design, <coughs> design and complexity about mankind, and therefore, if, if design, then an intelligent designer, that suggests then that the designer, by, by course, by nature, must be more complex than what he or it has designed, and, and therefore an absolute impossibility. What about that argument? Well, it, he's really, it's really kind of a twist on, actually, a, uh, from a theologian named William of Ockham uh, in Ockham's Razor, which basically said if you have two explanations, the simpler one should be chosen. But, I mean, that's like saying I go into an art museum and say, well, I'm trying to figure out who made this painting, and I can't, 
I can't postulate an artist because the artist would be more complex than the painting. You see, so simplicity, the, 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 if you start looking at the complexities, or the complexities rather, of what it would take for a universe to start itself, the complexities of all the detail from DNA to the fine-tuning to the moral, to, to the morality within humans, to the existence of consciousness. Uh, I mean, think about this. I mean, when Dawkins talks about who designed the designer, well, uh, you're, you're really, that's kind of like a schoolyard. It's like if you go to the moon, Al, Alvin Plantigo, a philosopher, said if you go to the moon and found a, you know, somehow this big machinery on the other side and, and somebody said, oh, that couldn't have, you know, that, that just had to happen because, you know, it couldn't have just gotten here on its own or if you're positing somebody brought that here, they would be more complex than that. I mean, it really becomes an absurd argument. So I think the evidence, Craig, the evidence of design, the evidence of morality, the evidence of our own conscious minds and personality, and ultimately reason itself. There is no other explanation for reason than a, than a mind behind the universe. Uh, C.S. Lewis would have said it this way, what's more plausible, that mind brought matter into existence or that inanimate, you know, you know uncaused or, you know, matter brought mind into existence? So the best explanation, I believe, to the objective mind is, is that there was mind first and then matter. Well, we look, for example, at the so-called Big Bang Theory and the notion that out of this huge bang, this huge explosion, came such an incredible, incredible degree of chaos, and yet we, or, or organization, rather. And yet, since then, we've never been able to repeat that. Every time I've seen a bomb go off, we know its capability of destruction. We've never seen anybody blow up a building, for example, and wind up with a steamship. <laughs> you know, the, the notion oh, that true. somehow out, out of destruction comes order simply doesn't make any sense. And yet that's been one of the arguments that they've hung frivolously too for so many decades. If you've tuned in a bit late, we're visiting today with Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. We'll come back to more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation in this portion of the program with Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. Doctor, what about this notion that it seems to be it's either God or science, that they're mutually exclusive, people that like to engage in that debate. Um, They're looking for the historicity of Christ the eyewitness accounts, the normal things that we would ask of anyone who's giving a an account of an event that took place that the rest of us did not witness. For example, uh, how, how do we know that the Titanic sunk? None of us, for the most part, were alive in 1912 when that event occurred, but we have the accounts of eyewitnesses. We have historical evidence. We have scientific proof, so to speak, to back up the fact that such a vessel did exist, it did sink, and a thousand people perished at sea. Right. I, I, Craig, I think what you're saying is, is that, you know, first of all, science, uh, science and God, I mean, the, science rose out of a Christian worldview. People don't realize this, that the original scientists, so to speak, were believers. And the reason it rose out of a Christian ethos was because they believed the universe and the world was rationally understandable. 
And because of that, they understood, like Isaac Newton understood the mathematical order of the world, and, 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 of, and you start seeing the complexity of things and the harmony of things. I mean, Einstein himself, who was no, uh, he didn't believe in a personal God, but he certainly, uh, he certainly said things that people today that are trying to portray him as an ultimate skeptic don't like to be reminded of. He said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that the universe is comprehensible. And so uh, scientists have talked about that people who are Christians talk about it being like binocular vision, that you t it takes faith and science working together. Uh, science can tell you if you go into a kitchen and you see a boil of you know water on the you, a pot boiling on the stove, you can measure the heat and when the water boils and the, 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 all of the elements that are making up the pot. But science can't tell you why that pot of tea is boiling or why that kettle is boiling. Well, I'm going to make a cup of tea. Would you like one, as C.S. Lewis would have said? So there's, there's the ultimate questions of why we're here. Is Gottfried Leibniz... Uh, mathematician and a believer would ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, I was on a university campus at the University of New Orleans, and I, I, I posed that to the classroom. I said, look, you have either, you, you either, everything you see either created itself or it was started by something besides itself, thinking that would be a simple little choice of every, everything we see, matter, energy, space, time, all of it just started itself or it was started by something besides itself. And a student raised his hand. He said, there's a third choice. I said, well, what is it? He said, maybe we're not here at all. I, and our class kind of laughed, and I said, well, in that case, you wouldn't be here. So be quiet. But no, we're here. And so why is there something rather than nothing? Scientists can't answer that. They can't answer where did life come from. Darwin proposed evolution, but evolution is a theory that tells you what happens after you get life. It can't tell you where the self-replicating mutator uh, or that, that mechanism came from, much less the original organism. Darwin said that in The Origin of Species. We, have no, we at this point have no understanding as to where life came from. Uh, the scientists can't answer why are we moral. You know, people talk about the problem of evil, but what about the problem of good? For every one person that goes in and shoots up a theater or does something in a school, there's millions more that would never do such a thing and know it's wrong and reach out in comfort and concern and compassion. And so why are we moral? What's, what, what is this thing called morality that we know there's a right and a wrong, and Darwinian ethics can't explain that? Darwinian ethics can't tell us why Hitler was wrong versus uh, other scientists from other countries. And the ultimate question... Uh, Craig, that science can't answer is, who can we trust to fix us? And really, I think for our listeners, and the, you know, whether it's politics or interest rates, I mean, all the things you cover on this show, everybody's looking for who can I trust, whose advice can I trust? And really, the ultimate evidence of why we can trust in Jesus Christ is because the, the God himself, the Creator, became a man in Christ and he walked on this earth, and then he inexplicably to, the, to those around him uh, gave himself over to, to be killed. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And, and interesting, he rose from the dead in the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove, which was Jerusalem. I lived in Jerusalem for several months, been there many times, and nobody doubts there really that Jesus lived. Uh, it's really, it comes down to what happened, nor did he really, did he die. The question, the ultimate question is, what happened after three days? And when he came out of that grave in history, resurrected, it verified his identity. 
And that's why we know we can trust his voice, his words, uh, his, his, his wisdom. We can trust that. We can trust that advice, if you will, and say that God hasn't just kind of given us some vague understanding. He has reached us in Christ and given us the ultimate evidence. In the ultimate evidence, and I know inside the book, God's Not Dead, you refer to nine basic proofs of the, the, the evidence of God. Is the ultimate design here to be a handbook for believers to understand more about their faith as they share it with others in a more vibrant fashion? Or is this even appropriate for someone who's a seeker that says, you know, I don't know that God exists, or I have severe doubts of his existence, and I've been challenged, and so I'd like to do some research? Craig, thank you for that question. It's really all of the above. I mean, I think, number one, there's a lot of people that know God is real. You know he's real, but you just can't show it. Uh, you have a subjective experience of God, but if you're asked by a classmate, by a coworker, In fact, the man who, one of the men who inspired this book was in the Christian music industry. His name is Dean, and uh, he'd been in there for several years. And he said, he said to me, he said, I was actually talked out of my faith by an atheist. And he's driving down the highway, and uh, he just, out of his mouth, he said, God, I just can't believe in you anymore. Here's a Christian music executive in the city I'm in right now, Nashville, and he just finally is so embarrassed because this atheist pretty much said something that he couldn't respond to, that he just verbalizes this, hey, God, I don't want to believe in you anymore. And he said, no sooner had he said that, that he hears a voice that said, who do you think you're talking to? Mm. So he literally pulls his car off the side of the road on I-40 here in Nashville to get his heart right, he said, but he still had to get his head right. And see, this is the thing, is that God, we don't have a faith that can't be examined. God doesn't want us to bury our doubts or just swallow and follow or don't think like that. He calls us to love him with all of our minds and hearts. So first of all, if you're a believer, but yet you're struggling with doubts, or I, can't exp- I don't think I could explain this to an unbeliever, then yes, I've written this book, God's Not Dead, to give you those proofs. Uh, but if you are a seeker, or even more, if you're a skeptic, uh, you know, Craig, my atheist brother, I, I, I tell the story about my brother, who is my older brother, he was in law school at Southern Methodist University. He had a master's degree in counseling and psychology, and in his third year, at the top of his class, he came home to talk me out of the Christian faith. Mm. And he'd been studying the Bible to find the contradictions. And really, in, the, in trying to answer his questions, it dawned. I just looked at him and I said, Ben, it's not what you don't know about God that's keeping you from him. It's what you do know. It's like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. It says in Romans, and men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's what he was doing. And uh, the night he came home to talk me out of the faith, I actually baptized my older brother. He's an attorney now, Ben Brooks, in Austin, Texas, and, and, a, and a very formidable witness for Christ. But I have found that the skeptic and the, and the atheist, I mean, I'm, I think if we talk to them and answer their questions and listen to their objections, I think this book is going to give any believer uh, the ability to be in that conversation. I've got a 16-year-old, and I tell him all the time, I say, his name is Wyatt. I said, Wyatt, this may be over your head, but it's not out of your reach. And I think that if, if believers, I mean, look, there's fantastic, you know, Robbie Zacharias, Lee Strobel, you can name it, William Lane Craig, Dr. Hugh Ross, on and on. But, you know, we don't just need another expert. We need millions of believers, Craig, that can articulate the evidence for their faith, 
uh, to the world around them. And that's what I hope the book will give every believer the ability to do. And I hope then, too, for those that might even be listening right now that are decidedly in the, the, the curious category, the seeker category, maybe decidedly in the disbeliever category. You know, it has often been said sometimes by atheists that uh, uh, they, um, they've never come to faith in the existence of God or faith in Christ for one or two reasons, either because, well, they never knew a Christian who told them the story or because they did know a Christian and therefore decided not to. Don't let the behavior sometimes of others stand in your way of engaging in your own truth-seeking, your own research. Oftentimes at the end, there ultimately is much too too much evidence to simply ignore or to maintain disbelief. And good way to get educated and start, whether you're a seeker, curious, disbeliever, or somebody that's just looking to get a better handle on your own faith. Uh, you, you want to trade that weak, listless, ineffective faith for an alive, vibrant, life-changing faith. Uh, this book is a good place to start. God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. The book, by the way, newly published by our friends over at Thomas Nelson. You can get it at the usual suspects, Bay Area bookstores, as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, Dr. Brooks, you've got a website too, don't you? Yes, we do. We have it's ricebrooks.com. Or you can, if, you're, if there's pastors listening, we have resources. There's actually sermon series of free notes. We'll, in other words, we're we are wanting pastors and leaders and campus leaders. I've just come from, I'm, I'm currently on a campus tour, and uh, campus leaders are doing series and small group material. You can go to godsnotdead.org or ricebrooks.com. But, yeah, the book technically comes out, Craig, in about a week. I think it's a week from today, but I think you can get it uh, pre-ordered on Amazon, but it'll hit the bookstore shelves in about a week. So Excellent. We'd I love, really to, have, love, you love to have you on early to do a bit of a tease here tonight, Doctor, and we'd love to get you back again soon. Thank you so much. There is Dr. Rice Brooks. God's not dead. Evidence for God in an age of uncertainty. And our thanks to Dr. Rice Brooks for being with us on this segment of the program. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just 
felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.